Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 18, 1 through 3. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. Good morning. Jim, I appreciate your story about that wonderful Christmas gift, and I think we've all been there, whether it's Christmas or something. I want to call your attention, though, to... You ever see one of those videos of the poor kid at Christmas, maybe on YouTube or something, and he has this one thing he wants. Maybe it's a bicycle, maybe it's something, and he unwraps the present, and it's not it. You ever seen one of those? I mean, it can be kind of hard to watch. There, there, there was one, <clears throat> the guy wanted an Xbox. It's all he wanted, all he talked about. All he wanted was an Xbox. He opened the package. He saw this picture of a pottery wheel. And on the box it says, make pottery at home fun for the whole family. <laughs> So you're watching this and you're thinking, this poor kid, you know, I mean, the, the look of devastation and just shock. I mean, he didn't see that coming. I mean, it could have been a lot of things, but that was not what he was hoping for. And then, you know, the, the shock and the confusion, then it becomes the look of anger. And that's when it's kind of kind of hard to watch, you know, and they kind of maybe lash out, say something, throw the box, whatever. It's it, it's it's not pleasant. You know, as adults, we never approve of that kind of behavior, of acting out like that. But we have to admit, we know what that feels like. You're expecting one thing, and you're sitting there with that box in your lap that you didn't see coming. Now, we might can masquerade our feelings, but we know what that feels like down deep. You know, like, ladies... Wives, you ask your husbands, you know, all I want for my birthdays is one pair of shoes. You go to this store, it's this brand, this size, this color, that's all I want. The day comes and, and you look and the box is about the right size. You think, alright, he did it, he got it. And you open it up, and instead of being shoes, it's something like, you know, a set of exercise DVDs or, you know, some Nutrisystem food or something like that. You think, what are you thinking? You know, or or maybe it's the husbands. You know, you're just thinking, I, I want the the hypothetically, I, I want the new iPhone. You know, and 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 you're thinking, okay, you you see the package, it's about the right size, and you open it up, and it's a picture frame. You know, or nose hair nose hair clippers, or just something. You're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. But we all know what it's like to have those moments. And even though we may not, like a child, throw the box or slam doors, sometimes it's the same emotions, the same feelings. And it goes on with life. It's not just Christmas. It's not just presents, you know. Maybe you're about to graduate from college. You know, when you started four years ago or four and a half years ago or five years ago, you, you had great aspirations and dreams. It was going to be great. You know, and then you're about to turn the tassel and no job is coming to fruition and you're thinking, I might have to go back and move in with mom and dad. 
course, mom and dad's thinking they may have to come back and move in with us. I mean, there, there's disappointment. It happens in life. Or you get married and you have all these dreams. You've been thinking about this all your life. And you unwrap the package. And sometimes that takes a couple of months or maybe a couple of years. And you, then you realize, this is what I've got. And maybe it's not what you're looking for. In chapter 9 in the story, it's almost like there's a video recording the story. And it's, the, it's, it's a great story. It's not that long. You see a lot of expressions. You see joy. Uh, you see peace. You see contentment. But you also see disappointment. You see anger. And their story that is recorded here is so like life. In fact, one of the things about the book of Ruth that we've been reading through the story is, is why is it in the Bible? You ever ask yourself that? It doesn't, it doesn't read like a, a regular book of the Bible. There's, there's no miraculous signs. I mean, there's no divine intervention. I mean... It could read like any other story. And so you may ask yourself, why is it in the Bible? It comes during the time of Judges, but it's not about any of the Judges. It doesn't even seemingly appear to be about the nation of Israel. You know, at first glance, it doesn't seem to have anybody special, no one of, of significance. And so you read through it and you think, why is the book of Ruth even in the Bible? It's the story about Elimelech. And his wife, Naomi. We don't have a picture of Naomi, but we can imagine her because the Bible says her name means pleasant or sweet. And that's how she would describe her life. And it seems to capture at least the early years, she would describe her life as full. I mean, she got married to this man. I mean, she had these two children. I mean, life is good for her. But when we pick up the story, the expression has changed. Some difficult turns have happened. The famine is so bad. It's so severe. I mean, it's, it's rough. And it's not just rough. I mean, they're at survival mode. And, and, I, and I can, I'm concerned about this because when we read about a famine and about being hungry, I don't think we can really understand. So maybe we could make it personal. Make it up to date and something we could relate to. If you're married, your husband comes home. You can tell just by the way he comes in, it's been a bad day. But he doesn't talk about it. You ask a couple of probing questions and he just doesn't seem to be wanting to engage. You eat dinner, not much conversation. He goes and turns on the television, but he's not really watching. You know something's happened. Right before you go to bed, he drops the bomb. I lost my job today. And you try to say all the right words. You know, it's going to be okay. I mean, we've been saving for this. I mean, it's not the end of the world. We'll get another job. It's going to be all right. We'll work together. At the end of six months, all your savings is gone. You sold the car. You sold the house and moved into an apartment. You're at the point, you're just trying to eat. And what's so bad is not just that, that you lost your job, everybody's having a hard time. And so, so what are you going to do? I don't know if we've ever known that kind of hunger to, to, to go to our child's bed at night and to say a prayer of gratitude and all you can do is hear your little boy's stomach rumble with hunger pain. We don't know that. When you think about those kinds of moments, You've been there in a different way, maybe. And you look back and you think, 
I can't believe I used to care about such things, you know, trying to, to, to repaint the house or, or maybe going to the store, buying the next clothing item or, or maybe the next tablet or the next gadget that's coming along. At those moments of desperation, you kind of look at yourself and think, boy, I was so shallow. I was really caught up in so many things that don't really matter. Right now, you're thinking of, what are my boys going to eat? Are we going to make it? Are we going to survive? And finally, your husband says, we got to do something desperate. we got to move. I've heard there's some better jobs a couple of states over. You don't want to leave your family. You don't want to leave your home. Even though you've had to leave your house, that's still your hometown. You pack up your bags. You leave everybody and everything trying to survive. This is what happens to Naomi and her husband. They're on the move. They had to go somewhere. Now, if you look on the map, Moab from their home is not that far, but it's a whole world away, a whole different culture. And that's what's happening here. And we need to understand what this was like for them. I mean, if you grew up like I did in the same house from like 18 months to 18 when I went to college, that's a big move. But we can't relate to what it would be like for this situation Family, land, promised land, it was, it was tied to your identity. You didn't leave. You didn't move. That was a part of you. So to make this move to another country was a huge step. You know, the goal was to pass the land on to the next generation. You're leaving that by. You don't know if you'll come back. So they go to Moab. Now, Moab, just a little bit about them. These are the descendants of Sodom. It's a very pagan culture. When we think about them, when we think about they were so prejudiced toward the, the Israelites that the hate went both ways with these people. So they go to this hostile country and they're just looking for food. And thinking maybe it's got to be better. And I wonder if Naomi, when she's making this journey, you know, she's thinking, you know, I've lost everything. We're losing our home, we're losing our land, but I got my husband. He's a good man. He loves me. I've got my sons. We've got our health. You know, we may be having to move, but God's going to take care of me. I wonder if Naomi was thinking that. In fact, in talking about this phase in her life, she described, even with all of that, she described her life as full. That's her perspective. They get to Moab. Her husband gets sick and doesn't get better. He dies. So here's this single mom, a widow in a foreign country with two boys to bring up on her own. They do grow up. They marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And that's good, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, when it's dark days, you're ready for a little sunshine. And two weddings, I mean, that had to be a reason to celebrate. But we know the story. These two weddings are soon followed by two funerals. And there's no grandkids in between. And so what is good, this moment of brightness, is now this incredible grief. I want to make sure as we read through the story, the book of Ruth and the story of Naomi, that we understand she's experiencing amazing, inordinate amount of grief. Edgar Jackson defines grief like this. Grief is a silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes from a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who's no longer there. 
Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another person for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they're not. And they never will be again. This is grief. And some of you get it. Some of you know because you've been there. And you might still be there. Some of us don't get it. But we will. If we live long enough, you're going to experience this kind of loss. And Naomi experiences what would seem to be just an inordinate amount of loss. Millie Renner was married to her husband for 51 years. He died and she thought, I'll never find love again. But she did. In fact, five years later, she was engaged to a man to be married, but the day before the wedding day, her fiancé passed away. Isn't that awful? And she would say, you know, I know there are other people out there who feel the way I feel. I know there are other people who are hurting the way I'm hurting. And so she wrote some poetry just to express, you know, does it get any better? Let me share this with you. Put it on the screen. The poem is called Broken. Do you see that pile of wood chips on the floor? That's what's left of the life I had before. When I was loved by you with all your heart, when passion awoke and played its part, our, our oneness and purpose, agreement and thought is something that could not, that could not be bartered or bought. It seemed to be perfect to have heaven's blessing. Each word, gaze, and touch was a form of caressing. I've never known such love before. That all that remains is that pile on the floor. It looks to others like I'm doing alright. They don't see the wood chip of crying at night. My family and friends think I'm doing okay. The wood chip is hidden of my struggle each day. So many chips in that pile on the floor. Emptiness, loneliness, disappointment, and more. Dreams unfulfilled, plans hung in midair, love uncompleted, beckons imagining so rare, my life has been broken, nothing fits anymore. There's a big pile of wood chips in the middle of my floor. Is that what Naomi is feeling right now? I mean, her world is just falling apart. All these broken pieces. She's lost everything. Her husband, her sons, her home, her land. These are desperate times for her. So she tells her two daughters-in-law, I gotta go home. I gotta go back. You stay here. This is your family. This is your land. I've gotta go back. Orpah agrees to stay, but Ruth, her daughter-in-law, refuses to stay. Look at the screen, Ruth 1.6. You're going to open your Bibles, but we're going to be reading in Ruth in just a moment. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. We're familiar with this text, aren't we? Probably the best known verses in the whole book of, of Ruth. You've probably heard it at a wedding. The husband and the groom, 
husband and the groom. Let me rephrase that one. <laughs> Woo! The man and the woman at that moment. It's good to use Bible verses in Scripture in, in, in a wedding, is it not? But this is a daughter-in-law saying this to her mother-in-law. Isn't that something? That would be like in the middle of a wedding. Think about it. In the middle of a wedding, you just stop and the, 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 the bride-to-be turn to the mother-in-law-to-be and say, wherever you go, I will go. <laughs> Not going to happen, is it? But that's what's happening here. There's this very special relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. The next verse says, verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth and Naomi make this incredible journey back to Naomi's hometown. They go across the mountains and they go to Bethlehem. Now commentators will, will guess that it's, it's a small town. We know that. But maybe as small as 200. And what this means is when Naomi comes back, it's big news. I mean, a small town of 200, you're going to know. And so people start talking. Is that Naomi? Looks kind of like her. She's, it's been 10 years. I don't know. I'm not sure. Could that be her? Look what Naomi says. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. They, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do you, do you not just hear her words, but can you feel her pain? Maybe even see her face through all of this? She's mad. And let's say it, she's mad at God. God did this. That's what she's saying. God's not held up His end of the bargain. I did what I was supposed to do. God totally disappointed me, afflicted me, brought this misfortune upon me, she says. It wasn't supposed to happen like this. Isn't that our message? I wonder if some of this sounds familiar. If you've ever been at a point in your life when you feel like God has not just said no, but He's turned His back on you. Even done something awful to you. So as you read the, this story in the book of Ruth about Naomi, here's the question. What is the story about? What's it really about? If you could put one word and say, what's it about? I thought about this. You know, to me it's easy. It's about loss, isn't it? I mean, think about everything this poor woman has lost. Her husband, her sons, her home, her land. Each of them is big. You put all that together. This is huge. But does it have to be about loss? Gerald Sitzer is a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, a number of years ago, he was in a car accident, hit by a drunk driver. He wasn't injured, but he lost three generations. His mother, his wife, and his young daughter. Can you imagine that? All at one time. He survived. He lost all of them. He wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. Don't you like that title? A grace disguised. Here's what he said. 
The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. Now, it's one thing for me to say that. But he's saying that. He says the defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be about the response to the loss. In other words, we get to decide what we're, we don't get to decide what roles we play. What we do get to decide is how we respond to the roles that we're given, to what happens to us. And so you reach this point, we all do in our life and say, is this going to define me? Is this going to be who I am? Do I wear this as a jacket? Is this what everybody, when they see me, they're going to see that? Am I going to wear it that way? Am I going to live it that way? Or could it be different? See, that's hard. And that's really hard when you're in the middle of that and your world is just falling apart and God has forsaken you and you're thinking, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. See, I think it had to be hard for Naomi not to focus on her own pain in the lower story. Remember we are talking about that? The lower story and the upper story? What's God doing in the big picture? And what's happening in my life? If you've lost your husband and your sons, you're a woman in this culture in this day, you're sunk. You don't have anything. It had to be hard for Naomi to not just be absorbed with this. That's why she said, don't call me sweet. Don't call me pleasant. You call me bitter. God's made me bitter. I left full. And God's taken it all away. But here's what we see. And when we love the story of Ruth, if there's one word to describe the, the story of Ruth, these four chapters, it's not lost. So if you wrote that in the blank, just exit out. It's redemption. That's what's beautiful about the story. I want you to read with me. Open your Bible to Ruth 2. It's not going to be on the screen. Too many verses. I wanted to give our PowerPoint operator a little bit of help. Grab your own Bible. I try to do that on the screen, especially for uh, moms maybe holding the baby. But if you've got a young one in your lap, look on with somebody else. You didn't bring your Bible, grab one in the pew. We're going to read quite a few verses. I want to pick up the story of Ruth chapter 2. Just get it straight from the text. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now that's key. Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is a Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather from among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink of water from the jars the men have filled. After this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, 
Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have now come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down with the harvesters. He offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. After she got up to glean, Boaz gave her orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some of the stalks from her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and then mounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. We'll talk about that phrase in a moment. Kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to his servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servants you have been, have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourselves and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl that you were wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, 
asked, How did it go, my daughter? She told him, told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled quickly, settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went, went to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me and I will, so I will know. For no, one, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you require the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it for yourself. I cannot. Then verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Milan. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Milan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property so that the name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. And then verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi, coming back, feels empty, deserted. Her words, afflicted. But if she could have just looked through the tears long enough, she would still see that God was still at work. Let's quickly do this. I want us to consider some ways God redeems. He did in this story. He redeemed her story of loss with an unlikely friendship. Did you notice that? I mean, not who you would think. Her, her story of loss comes from that angle. And we, when we do that, we find the same thing, that God will work through people, and oftentimes it's not who you expect. I mean, you wouldn't think, a woman would think her, her daughter-in-law would be such a key friend and person to care for her. And that's just what happened. In fact, a little bit later in the text, the village, when they get to know Ruth, that they, even though she's a foreigner, even though she's from this pagan land, they say of her in chapter 4, verse 15 to Naomi about Ruth, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Talking about the grandson, this heir that's going to keep the land and the family. So in the middle of her grief, she has this unlikely friendship that is, is an amazing help and redeems the story. What's interesting though, and I want you to notice this, what's interesting is that Naomi's first impulse is to send her away. Did you notice that? You go back to your family, I'm going home. Don't we do that? When we're hurt, people come to us, nope, nope, I don't need you. I'm alright. And it may be even just subconscious. We push people away. 
See, one of the hardest things to do, especially in time of crisis, is to let people love you. And that's what's happening here. That's what the church is supposed to be about. That God will redeem that loss. And that's inevitable in a fallen world. You may not be a widow. You may not lose your your children to death. But you're going to go through something. And God's people are to be there for each other. To help each other. But also see that God redeems the loss secondly through this undeserved kindness. Boaz is just so kind in this situation. Now, let me be the first to say, there are some strange details going on here, is it not? I mean, their culture, I don't understand the lying at his feet and the corner of the, of the, of the covering there. And, and I've read about that. It just sounds a little strange to me. But even in the middle of that, did you notice how he's honorable? He doesn't take advantage of her. He could have. Nobody would have known. He doesn't even want her to be seen. He doesn't want people to talk. He knows of her character that's impeccable. And he wants to keep that intact. There's a kinsman redeemer. That just means that near relative. That nearest relative who can buy the land. Like, like she's talking about, she's desperate. She's got to have money. So she's going to sell the land. Well, who does it go to? See, this was set up in the promised land. It stayed within the family. Well, who gets first dibs? Well, who's related? Who's the closest relative? That's what kinsman redeemer means. Well, Boaz was second in line. But he wanted to be first. Boaz comes along and says he would do that. But my question is why? He didn't have to. Why does he go out of his way to redeem her? See, this is where I think we get the answer to why the book of Ruth is in our Bible. This book that we're using, the story, is helping to see the Bible as a story. And, and that it is. It's one big story. And we get to see how it's all connected. See, here's the question. Who's Boaz? Do you remember? What do we know about Boaz? Not much. Except his mother. Who's Boaz's mother? Do you remember? It's Rahab. See, we studied about Rahab a couple of weeks ago. You remember Rahab, the prostitute that she's called throughout Scripture? This Canaanite prostitute, when, when the children of Israel are coming to take over Jericho, she believes in Jehovah God, and because of her faith, she is saved, and she becomes a part of these children of Israel. She's not an Israelite, but she's welcomed in because of her faith. That's the story of God. Everybody is welcome. You believe, you're in. That's, that's who God is, and we see it from beginning to end. Her faith saves her. Rahab has a son. She calls him Boaz. I couldn't help but think this. We need to name more of our sons Boaz. He's a good man. He's an awesome man. He grew up to be a man who not only honored God and would speak blessings to his workers. Did you catch that? But he's also the kind who looked out for those in trouble. Those in need. He had a soft spot in his heart. God redeems this story with the most intriguing insight. This wonderful story of, of Ruth, and it's, it's really more about Naomi, and Ruth kind of comes in at the tail end. But it ends with a genealogy. And you read through that. Ruth 4, verse 17 Boaz and Ruth have a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
is King David. Do you get it? I mean, is this not just fantastic? I mean, Ruth just has four chapters in it, but when you read through the, the story, you get this little genealogy, and you think, well, I've read that before. Of course you have. It's in Matthew chapter 1. It's the very same thing. And usually in genealogies, women aren't mentioned, but this time, it is. Ruth is mentioned. Rahab is mentioned. God connects all the stories in here. See, the story of Ruth is the story of the Gospel of Matthew. It's all about our kinsman redeemer. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's helping us to see how God works. So who would have guessed that God was taking this poor widow's all broken pieces on the floor and using it for good? So if you ever watched any of those videos... Let me close up. You ever watch one of those videos? I like the surprise part. I don't like it when they act out. When they get angry. You know, when the emotions turn from shock and disappointment to anger. The box gets thrown. The door gets slammed. It gets kind of ugly. Well, in this particular video, that's what happens. And I think that's the message here. Take time to open the box. To see what God is doing. It may be in your life, in your lower story, this, this huge box of disappointment that is in your lap and so much you can't even get up. It's not the rest of the story. Maybe you need to open the box and see what's inside. See, what I love about the story of Ruth is you could take the story of Ruth and you could put that in 2014. You ever thought about that? There's no Abraham hearing the audible voice of God. There's no Moses before the burning bush. There's no, no Red Sea. There's no ark that saves Noah from the flood. You don't see any of that in the book of Ruth. You don't see the, the pillar of fire by day and the cloud at night or reverse. You don't see any of that. But you get to the end of the story and what you know is this. You fill in the blanks. God is at work. He's working in all of it. That's the message. That's the message of the story of Ruth. God is at work. It may feel too late. It may feel like it's too broken, but God's at work. It may not seem obvious. You may not be able to see the hand of God, but God's at work. It may not be dramatic. It may not be immediate. We may be talking years, but God is at work. And what I'm saying is this. When it happens in our fallen world, don't let that define you. Don't let that be your story. That box that you're looking at may be labeled widow or, or cancer or divorce or, or fired or infertile. But you don't have to let that be your story. You don't have to let that be your identity. You don't let it have to be about loss. It can be about redemption. Give God a chance. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to do just that. Maybe for you today, that means you name the name of Jesus and let Him wash you clean in baptism. Because He is your kinsman redeemer. And He's paid the price. He's next in line. He's the only one that can do it. Or for you, maybe it's just that we as a church can be that unlikely friend, that one to show kindness, so that God help redeem your story. Can we pray for you and encourage you?
when she comes, we stand and sing.